Hello, baseball fans, and welcome to Sully Baseball Daily, the podcast we talk about baseball 365 days a year. Unless it's a leap year, then we're going to do another one. I've been doing this every single day since October 24th, 2012. It is now the 20th day of December 2016, and I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sully. I'm recording this from Sully Baseball Studio in Palo Alto, California, the birthplace of Oakland A's manager Bob Melvin, and just down the 101 from AT&T Park, the home of the San Francisco Giants. Well, today is kind of, you know, I, as a Boston Red Sox fan, and I am one, I make no bones about that, uh, I this is kind of a strange, conflicted day for your pal Sully because the it's the end of a time of a pitcher with the Red Sox, who's had a strange, conflicted time with the Red Sox. Um, When you look at a player and you think of what does someone have to do to endear himself to the fans? Now, I think in this day and age, you can't ask for someone to play more than 10 years for your team. I think 10 years, anything more than that, I think is great. If you've played 10 seasons with your team, you can say, do you want, this is the free agent era. That's about as long as you can ask. And today there's a player for the Red Sox who's played 10 years with the Red Sox. Along the way has earned a pair of World Series rings. Was a top 10 Cy Young Award finisher one season. Twice made the All-Star team. And had a bunch of truly terrific highlights, including an all-time highlight in a Red Sox uniform. And yet, his legacy with the Red Sox is conflicted at best, aggravated at worst, and made people turn his last name into a piece of profanity, partly because it rhymed with a piece of prof- part of it rhymed with a piece of profanity, and also because he brought a ton of frustration to being a Red Sox fan. And I've seen this happen before. When you have a player, you know, this, you know, this other example I'm going to give is a specific pitcher who kind of took the team on a roller coaster ride. You know, it's, sometimes it's difficult to say goodbye to someone when you look at him and go like, man, you gave me so much agita. You gave me so much heart, you know, heartburn that you can sometimes have a difficult time separating the good time from the bad. Sometimes remembering that there were good times along with the bad because those bad times stick with you. You know, a lot of times a feeling that you have with someone can be reflected upon expectations, can be reflected upon first impressions, and can be reflected upon disappointments along the way. Of course, I'm talking about Clay Buckles. Now, Clay Buckles came to the Red Sox with a tremendous amount of pressure and had about as spectacular an introduction as you could have. Now, Buckholz was a first-round pick for the Red Sox. Now, that was the year. I may have to look this up. I may have to go to BaseballReference.com, the single greatest website in the history of the planet Earth. Yeah, he was drafted in that 2005 class. And in 2005... The Red Sox drafted, uh, bear with me for a second, they drafted Clay Buckholz, they drafted Jed Lowry, and they drafted uh, Craig Hansen, who didn't really 
uh, amount to much, and they drafted Jacoby Ellsbury. Now, Craig Hansen was supposed to be the big, great new closer for the Red Sox, but everyone else on that list, Ellsbury, uh, Buckholz, and Jed Lowry, they all contributed. Michael Bowden, not so much. But that was a tremendous draft class for the Red Sox, and that was also on the heels of uh, winning the World Series and letting a bunch of players go. They let Orlando Cabrera go. Back then, you could still get a draft pick for someone, even if they only played part of the season. Uh, that didn't exist in the current uh, CBA. Red Sox let Orlando Cabrera go, and they drafted with that pick from the Angels, Jacoby Ellsbury. They let um, Derek Lowe go, and they go. They got um, Craig Hansen. Now, my favorite player in Red Sox history is Pedro Martinez, and he left that uh, winter to go to the Mets. And one of the picks they got is compensation for losing Pedro Martinez. They used to sign Clay Buckholz. Now, I really never really thought about it much while it was happening, but in essence, he was part of the compensation of letting the great ace, the great Pedro, the magnificent, skedaddle to the Mets. Now, Clay Buckholz was a college pitcher from Texas, and he was, you know, which of course immediately invokes images of Roger Clemens and Nolan Ryan and everything like that. He was from what, Nederland, Texas? Is that where he was from? Lumberton, Texas. And he wound up playing for McNeese State University, and then they drafted him out of Angelina College. One of the reasons why he didn't stay at McNeese State University is because um, he and a couple, a couple of his friends stole a bunch of laptop computers and started selling them on campus. And that got him in hot water. And kind of showed that maybe he didn't always make the best decisions in the world. Maybe he was, you know, maybe he was a bit of a dunderhead. But as it turned out, he was drafted by the Red Sox. And where did he land in that draft class? He was number 42 overall in that draft class. And there was a bunch of players who came out of that class. Uh, Ryan Braun, Andrew McCutcheon, Troy Tolowitzki, Z Ryan Zimmerman, Alex Gordon, Jacoby Ellsbury, Justin Upton, Jay Bruce. Now, there's a lot of quality major leaguers who were drafted in that particular draft class there. Um, and Buckholz was, was one of them. And he was drafted in 2005 and shot his way up through the system. In 2006, he was the Red Sox. I don't know if he was their top pitching prospect, but, man, he was up there. as He, you know, he blazed through Greenville. He blazed through Wilmington. He blazed through Portland. He blazed through Pawtucket. So by the time he got to the Red Sox in 2007, he was already he was 22 years old, was making mincemeat, out of the minor leagues and was kind of exploded onto the scene as this great potential ace for the team. And if you remember in 2007, the team was in great shape. Obviously they were, they were in the, they were in first place in the division. He had a spot start. He had this, this great, uh, you know, everyone was knowing they had this great young pitcher shooting up through the system and he did a spot start against the Angels in August, and he won it. And it was sent right back down. Like, okay, fine. And then they expanded the rosters in September, and he got a start. Now, 
if to understand his start that he got on September 1st, his second major league start, at the time, the Red Sox were indeed in first place. They were in first place, and for a big chunk of the year, they had been in first place by a lot. It looked like they were going to potentially run away with the division. But they were starting to have, they were starting, there were some chinks in their armor. They had, I mean, they had a winning August, to be sure. But you could see that the Yankees were starting to heat up. And while they had a four-game winning streak in mid-August, they were coming off of a four-game losing streak going into that September 1st game, including losing two really tough games to the Yankees at Yankee Stadium. And so there was a little bit of a sense of, oh, come on. I mean, they're probably going to make the wild card, but I really want to see this team win the division. And the night before, the Red Sox lost a 9-8 game. They lost 9 to freaking eight to Baltimore. And Baltimore was not any good that year. And the, the Orioles had like a, a, a nine to three lead and the Red Sox tried to rally, but they, they fell short. And there was a sense of, man, come on, Red Sox. Get your act together here. Their starting pitching wasn't looking very good. And you, you're starting to wonder, are they, is, is the wheel gonna come off this team? Is this going to be like 2005 when they had the lead in the division for most of the year and then they let the Yankees catch him at the very end? They you know, wound up making the playoffs, but they cost them a division title. Well, they gave a start to Clay Buckles, his second ever Major League start on September 1st, 2007. Coming off that four-game losing streak with a little bit of a hint that, man, the Yankees are starting to catch fire. Don't let them do it. And Buckholz threw a no-hitter. He struck out nine. He walked three. Now, he pitched 115 pitches. And there was talk that, that Francona would have lifted him if he walked another batter or got into any trouble. But he wound up going nine, and he wound up getting the no-hitter, and he wound up electrifying Fenway that the promise of this great young stud starting pitcher was there to be seen for all, that he came in, got the no-hitter, the Red Sox cruised to the division title after that, and lo and behold, there was a new ace in town. The Red Sox were going to go into the postseason with this absolute badass throwing a, you know, through a solid game his first game, but now he threw no hitter. It's like they acquired an ace down the stretch run. And, I mean, it was, it was electrifying. It was amazing. It was his great promise for the future. He threw a few more starts, and then they shut him down. Now, I was pissed when they shut him down because I said, what are you doing? You have a badass ace now. You have a you have a great potential starting pitcher. Well, how could you not even use him in the postseason? What do you, is it the whole point of having a team is to have a chance to win the World Series? I want to see him win the World Series again. And the fact that they put him on they put him on the side, say, hey, you go sit and you eat your sunflower seeds, and they put 
Eric Gagne in on the postseason roster, I thought that's insane. What are you doing? Even if you're not going to start Buckholz, even if you're going to say, oh, he's throwing X number of innings and we're going to save him for this or save him for that, you're sort of foreshadowing the arrival of Steven Strasburg and shutting him down when the team needed him most. I thought it was bananas. Now, in the end, it didn't matter. In the end, the Red Sox wound up winning the World Series, and they did so with the help of another young starting pitcher with John Lester. And thus came the potential promise. Yes, Beckett was the ace of that Red Sox team, but Schilling was retiring, and there was the notion, and Dice K was a good pitcher, but not the, de- the badass ace that they were hoping for. But the promise was there of Lester and Buckholtz. Two homegrown aces in the middle of this team. These two homegrown badasses. And when Lester threw a no-hitter the next year, it kind of brought up the idea of, yeah, this is what it's going to be. You know, Beckett may be the number one. Dice K may throw some innings, but it's going to be the Lester and Buckles show. And that was the great promise. And as it turned out, you could squint and say, did it? work out that way? Did it? One of the things that became so frustrating about the Clay Buckholz years as a Boston Red Sox fan was every once in a while, it felt like, yeah, oh, it's happening. Oh, now it's happening. Buckholz had a terrible 2008 to the point where he was sent back to the minors and was not put on the postseason roster again. He was came up and they had an okay second half of 2009 and actually wound up finally pitching in the postseason and doing, you know, pitching five innings in a must-win game, which the Red Sox wound up losing in 2009 to the Angels. By 2010, he was 25 years old and he put together his best overall season. He threw 173 and two-thirds innings, had the highest ERA plus in the American League, Finished sixth in the Cy Young voting, was an all-star. His ERA was 2.33, and if you like win-loss records, it was 17-7. And And so we all said, like, okay, finally he's made it. Okay, he's 25, he's here, he's there, ba-boom, we've got him, we've got our ace. Along with Lester, everything is beautiful, everything is wonderful, we can hug each other. And he signed a, a contract extension in the 2011 season, and then... Got a stress fracture in his back in June, and that was it. He missed almost the second half of the 2011 season, and that's, of course, when the Red Sox had their great collapse. Um, I don't know if he was drinking beer and eating chicken in the clubhouse. He was hurt. In 2012, it was frustrating. And that sense of we saw what he could be. We saw how great he could be with his no-hitter with his fabulous season he had in 2010. Flashes of brilliance. But we never saw the consistency. Because there were sometimes he would come up there and you're like, oh my God, this guy is terrible. This guy's getting bombed. This guy's horrific. And he was part of the 2012 team, which everyone hated. And oh God, this team sucks. Oh, and Buckholz was just, a, oh, Buckholz, who's pitching? Oh, Buckholz. The fact that you could say his name and, and wonder if it was even getting bleeped out. 
And by 2013, it's like, oh, this guy just sucks. This guy just sucks. And he went on, he won his first five decisions, first six decisions. And that April, every game he pitched, he was amazing. And he was continuing to be great into May. And he wound up going, going early June. He was he was nine and zero with an ERA of one point seven one back in the All Star game. Like oh my God, he's great again. This is oh he's going to miss all of he's going to miss all of July, all of August. Came back, pitched okay down the stretch. I mean, you look at what he did in twenty thirteen. He was twelve and one. His ERA was one point seven four. But by the time he got to the postseason. Uh, he pitched one good game against the Rays, but was not really that reliable. He wasn't the innings eater. He wasn't wasn't pitching like an ace. Now, as it turned out, hey, you go twelve and one with a sub two ERA for a team that wins the World Series, you get a salute forever, right? Well, the last couple of years he stunk. He was terrible in twenty fourteen. He was removed from the rotation in 2016, although pitched okay down the stretch and occasionally pitched out of the bullpen. But it became so frustrating because we were promised a great thing. We were promised an ace, a homegrown ace, a badass ace. But what we got was someone who every once in a while gave us something really amazing, but most of the time was frustrating. When you had someone who stunk and they continue to stink, you say, like, oh, yeah, I get it. They stink. When you get someone who is obviously great, but you only see that greatness from time to time, it's aggravating. It creates a scenario that they're a flake, that they're coasting, that the person who is dumb enough to steal a bunch of laptops while at a junior college in Texas is not putting their full brain into their into their job here. Now, I don't know if that's the case or not. The guy had a broken back, for Christ's sakes. He came back and, and in so many ways delivered. I mean, he kind of reminds me a little of Derek Lowe. Remember Derek Lowe, Red Sox fans? How there's some days Derek Lowe looked like an absolute world beater, like he's someone who could never you could never top him as a closer and as a starter. He, too, threw an emotional no-hitter that came out of nowhere. But there was also times that he was so terrible that you wanted to smash your head against the wall. Now, as it turned out for Lowe, he left the Red Sox on the ultimate high note, being the, the winning pitcher in each of the clinching games of the postseason in 2004, including six brilliant innings in Game 7 against the Yankees in the American League Championship Series and pitching those seven shutout innings in Game 4 of the World Series in St. Louis. And, of course, doing that weird clinching and grab of, grabbing of his privates against Oakland to clinch the 2003 playoffs. But we won't even go there. But he had an up and down, up and down. He's great, he's terrible, he's great, he's terrible. He happened to leave on his great note, so he'll always be beloved. I'm seeing a lot of Red Sox fans posting stuff as if to say, good riddance to Buckholz. And I, I kind of understand it, but part of me is saying, Hey, he gave us 10 years. Do the Red Sox win the World Series in 2007 without him? Um, I don't know. But the, um, the emotional high of that no-hitter at the tail end of that four-game losing streak going into September, hell, I mean, 
it, it didn't hurt. It didn't hurt that at a time when they were getting some bad starts that suddenly they had a guy come out there and throw a masterpiece. Didn't hurt. Did they win the World Series in 2013 without him? I don't know, but having him start out so great, especially a team with such low expectations, that they came out of the gates just absolutely guns a-blazing, you know, and that Buckholz was their most reliable pitcher initially. And for that year, in that year, 2013, the combination of Lester and Buckholz looked like it finally came true, and that resulted in a world championship. I don't know. I don't know if they would win it without him, but I know they won it with him. I know that he wound up playing in the for the 07, 08, 09, 13, and 16 Red Sox. Those are five teams that went to the postseason. Three of them were division winners. And he played in the 09, 13, and 16 postseason. There was a point in our lives that the idea of someone participating in a single Red Sox World Championship would have thought they would have brought everyone to a level of exaltation and godliness that they could do anything short of burning our house down and pillaging our town to get unconditional love for all time. Here's a guy who contributed two titles. So look it. It was a complicated relationship. It was a relationship that did bring frustration. It was a relationship that did bring disappointments. But in the end, think about some of the other people. I mentioned Craig Hansen, who barely participated in any post in any uh, you know, major league victories with the Red Sox. Think about the players in the drafts who never make it to the major leagues. Think about the bus. Think about the players who you, you bring up and say, oh, this guy was supposed to be a great pitcher. Ah, he, he flamed out. He was a bum. He never even got to the majors. He pitched three games. He got bombed. This guy was a Cy Young contender one year, an all-star twice, and has two World Series rings to his title and made starts in the postseason. Homegrown, 10 years. Now off to Philadelphia. To that, I say this. Clay, were you Roger Clemens? No, who is? Were you Nolan Ryan? No, who is? Were you even John Lester? No, no. But you were Clay Buckholz. Yeah, sometimes you made us pull our hair out. And sometimes your hair was filled with pine tar. But do you know what? You did give us some good memories. And I hope, I really hope, that when there's a reunion of the 2007 Red Sox or the 2013 Boston Strong Red Sox, they show some of your highlights, including that no-hitter, and you get the standing ovation that you deserve. So, Clay Buckles, thanks for the sometimes complicated memories, but good memories nonetheless. So go to SullyBaseball.com, like me on Facebook, subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, Twitter, Stitcher, Instagram, I'm everywhere. The music is by Ted Thacker and Patrick Kaliski. This has been the Sully Baseball Daily Podcast for the 20th day of December 2016. I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. You know what? I've made a decision. You can call me Sully.